Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week, I talk with Ben Montgomery. Montgomery is the author of Grandma Gatewood's Walk, the inspiring story of the woman who saved the Appalachian Trail. Montgomery is an enterprise reporter at the Tampa Bay Times and is the founder of the website Gangry.com, this podcast's namesake. Montgomery grew up in Oklahoma and studied journalism at Arkansas Tech University. In 2010, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Local Reporting and won the Dart Award and Casey Medal for a series called For Their Own Good. That series of stories examined abuse at Florida's oldest reform school. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Montgomery stories on our website. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. Ben, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Very glad you're doing uh, Gangray the Podcast. This is a, it's a great addition to narrative journalism. Oh, uh, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's more fun than I could ever imagine. So uh, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. So thank you for letting me use the name Gangry. Oh, you're, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about Gangry a little bit later, uh, gangry.com a little bit later in the podcast. Um, let's start things off by talking about Grandma Gatewood's Walk. Uh, your book that uh, just came out or is now available and, and is kind of launching um, quietly here uh, across the country. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what and who the book is about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In, uh, in 1955, this uh, genteel, uh, farm-reared, 67-year-old great-grandmother told her family that she was going on a walk, and she disappeared. And uh, the next anyone heard from her, uh, she had hiked from Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia to uh, roughly Roanoke, Virginia, uh, along the um, Appalachian Trail. At that time, only five men had, had completed what's referred to as a through hike, which is a walk uh, in one season of the whole 2,050-mile trail, which ends in Maine on top of Mount Katahdin. And... Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, so word started to spread. Some newspaper reporters in Roanoke, Virginia, found her. And that's when she finally dropped a postcard to her family back in Ohio, uh, telling them what she meant by, I'm taking a walk. Uh, and so uh, word spread. She became like, a, you know, th- the rest of the hike, there were AP dispatches and, and UPI dispatches pretty much every day, uh, especially as she neared Mount Katahdin and, um and she hiked through two back-to-back hurricanes that killed 200 people, more than 200 people in in, um, in New England. Uh, she she randomly uh, spent a night in a lean-to on the trail with uh, eight gangsters from Harlem, um, and almost got washed away in an overflowing uh, river um, at Clarendon Gorge. Uh, but she finally crested Mount Katahdin and sang the first verse of "America the Beautiful" and you know, said to no one in particular, I did it. They, you know, I said, I'd do it and I've done it. And, uh, so my book explores, uh, mainly that, 
that that first trip, she became the first woman to solo through hike the Appalachian Trail and the first person of either gender to do it twice and three times. At the age of 71 in 1959, she she completed a a walk of the Oregon Trail from Independence, Missouri to Portland, Oregon. Again, getting all sorts of uh, national attention from places like Sports Illustrated and she appeared on the Dave Garraway Show and the Today Show and the Groucho Marx Show. And uh, my my book, um, there was a lot of coverage, intense coverage at the time, and then she sort of faded away. But nobody ever really chipped away at the primary question, uh, which was, you know, why. And so my book um, tells her story and attempts to answer, uh, you know, why why this woman, why this old woman set set about on on a, a crazy pedestrian adventure at, at you know the age of starting at the age of sixty seven, really. It's it's such a great story, and the book is so well done, and, and I, I highly recommend that everybody go out and read it right now. Um, right. I'm curious, how did you first hear about Emma Gatewood? She's a distant family member. I grew up hearing stories from my mother about uh, Emma Gatewood, uh, who's known even to the, you know family members as, as Grandma Gatewood, which sort of became her trail name. Um, but my mom, uh, you know, would share these these stories that her own mother passed down uh and i was always sort of uh, captivated by uh you know by this eccentric uh, old woman who chased away a black bear with her umbrella and who had all these crazy experiences uh you know walking late in life um so i, I did uh, a couple of years ago a story uh, about an unsolved florida lynching that got a lot of attention and wound up in the hands of an agent in new york jane distal who uh who wrote me and asked um if if i had any book ideas and i uh, had a couple, it turns out, um, and she really liked the the idea about uh, you know doing a biography of Grandma Gatewood. So we we're sort of off to the races. Um, you mentioned the story spectacle. Can you talk just real briefly what that story is about? Yeah, 1934. There was a, a lynching in um, Jackson County, Florida, uh, that was uh, one of the last spectacle lynchings in the United States. Uh, Five thousand people participated in the. Um, murder and uh, mutilation of a farmhand named Claude Neal, who was accused of raping and killing a, a white farm girl. Um, and, uh, and so that story, uh, no, nobody was ever brought to trial. Nobody was ever charged with the crime in relation to his killing, even though, you know, tons of people witnessed it. And so um, that story was my attempt to uh, go into this small town way up uh, on the you know, on the Florida uh, border with Alabama and Georgia and try to see if these folks were ready after 70 some odd years to, you know, to name names and to talk about who was responsible for this um, act of barbarism. Yeah. Uh, going, uh, going back to Grandma Gatewood, had you, um, had you always thought that you might write about her at some point in time and maybe, but maybe didn't know how or, or what? Uh, no, you know, I, I mean, honestly, it was, it was always just this sort of familial curiosity. Um, and again, it was like she, so I was born in 78, she died in 73. Um, that side of the family stayed in Ohio. My side of the family kind of moved to Oklahoma. And, um, so I, I never knew a whole lot about her uh, besides, you know, these, these almost anecdotes that my mother would share as I was growing up. Uh, certainly never, I, I always kind of assumed that, she had been written about uh, a lot, and uh, I was surprised to learn that you know that nobody had, had taken a stab at a biography of her. Um, 
but it, it was that exploration was just because uh, primarily because I had an agent who was saying, do you have any book ideas? And, uh, if, you know, I guess uh, maybe looking back, it sort of always existed as a possibility, but but um, no, nothing I'd, I'd spent any time thinking about before I was asked for a couple of ideas. Mm-hmm. So once you once you kind of decided to, to go this route to, to kind of uh, look at look at Emma Gatewood as a book subject, um, where did you start reporting? How did you start that project? Yeah, well, I, <clears throat> I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't know what it took to do a book. I don't know what it took to do a book proposal. I don't know anything about the process, honestly, before uh, any of this. Two years ago, I was just, you know, com- completely oblivious to uh, what this kind of work entails. So um, the basically, the, the, you know, the pitch was just a couple of sentences. It was uh, uh, no more than three or four sentences to the agent. And when she said, I like this, can you, you know, let's put together a proposal well then you you start reporting and um and so uh you know first off it's uh who's alive that uh you know that knew her and um that that led me very quickly to uh her youngest daughter lucy seeds who fortunately lived in jacksonville florida and i i had a a couple of phone calls uh phone conversations with her and then went up to visit her and um uh, fortunately she has, uh, she's been the keeper of her mother's flame. She had preserved, uh, tons of correspondence. She had preserved, um, uh, her mother's, uh, diaries that she kept on the, on her hike, uh, along the trail. She had kept photographs and scrapbooks and just told, you know, all the information you could need. Um, so I had that big and, and, you know, she was willing to share all of that, whatever I wanted. So I had that, uh, uh, four of Grandma Gatewood's 11 children were still alive at the time. One has since died, unfortunately. Um, Louise uh, Lamont Gatewood uh, passed about two months ago. But um, I was able to interview uh, uh, all four of them. They kind of they, they lived uh, in far-flung places, one, one in Phoenix, one in Ohio, uh, Jacksonville, and uh, outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. So I wanted to meet with them in person. I did, uh, you know, hours of interviewing with them. Um, and then I went in search of uh, anything on the public record having to do with Emma Gatewood, which, uh, you know, was primarily tracking down small newspaper articles um, in, uh, pa- you know, in papers alongside the trail, um, which meant, you know, uh, calling. Th- thank God for like small town librarians. So helpful for this book. But it involved just calling and, and telling them what I was looking for and, and the r- approximate dates that Emma would have been walking through their town in 1955. And, uh, you know, just being a sweetheart and trying to try to get them to share those things with me. Um, and then she, you know, her, her name was read into the congressional record. So there was a, there was a big... Uh, deal about her tracking down stuff like that was was all pretty easy oh and then um she uh, beautifully she kept a uh, you know she everybody that she met along the trail she would make note of it of their name in her diary and then often she would send them all postcards when she got to the end of the trail so i had a, a list of about i don't know 30 names of people that she met on that met or stayed with on that first hike and um uh, was able to track down probably 10 of them uh, who were still living, uh, which I thought was cool. Um, so, yeah, so that 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 was the reporting pretty much 
in a nutshell, I, I didn't uh, I didn't do all of that right right off the bat. I, I did probably f- maybe five percent of the reporting, um, uh, you know, to begin with before I just to just to get the proposal out there. When the book sold, then I really kind of launched into uh, deeper, wider reporting. It also, I'm sorry, it also involves like heavy reading about the trail because I, 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 I had about a year to do the to do the book, that reporting and writing. And so I couldn't quit my day job, so I couldn't through hike the trail, unfortunately. But I had to. Uh, I wanted to see places that she, you know, that were important to the story with my own eyes. So, um, so it involved going, uh, you know, to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, and we, my wife and I, climbed Mount Katahdin, retracing Emma Gatewood's steps, um, Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia. I wanted to see the start of the trail, some stretches along uh, through Pennsylvania. Um, so a lot of reading about the trail, also reading about 1955, which is a fascinating year in U.S. history, because um, I wanted to set it firmly in that, uh, you know, in that time. And so you got to acquaint yourself with all, everything that was going on in 1955, so a year before you know Elvis broke it big with Heartbreak Hotel. It was just before Rosa Parks uh, started the, uh, you know, the bu- massive bus boycott, which became sort of the pinnacle, defining moment of the civil rights movement year after Brown versus Board of Education. So there was all this racial conflict in the South. Um, all of these things uh, played into Emma's story just in terms of like setting her in a specific, in a specific year, you know? Right. Yeah. You mentioned um, that you weren't able to quit your day job to do this book. Um, I'm curious uh, how you balanced your day job, um, you know, working at the Tampa Bay Times along with the work, because it's not exactly um, the easiest thing in the world to report and then write a book manuscript. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a real challenge. I, I, um, I, I'm lucky in that uh, people here at the times were very supportive. And so if I needed to, um, sorry, if I needed to race off, uh, you know, to, to take a trip, um, uh, it was typically okay. Uh and I also tried to fold in, a, at least a couple of times, tried to fold in the reporting I was doing for the book with a uh, story or project I could be doing at the same time for the newspaper. Um, so I, I found myself, I had to you know, read like eight books just about walking. And I got really into, one of the books opens with, uh, it's like the history of walking or something, but it opens with um, this anecdote that blew me away. It was like for six million years, uh, we have relied on bipedal locomotion as primary means of locomotion. And it's been only in the past 100 or 150 years uh, since that has, uh, you know, since we've chosen to sit and ride rather than walk. And so um, uh, that nicely dovetailed, like that, that supporting it dovetailed with this. I had a date 150 years ago last year. Uh, the Atlantic published uh, a thorough essay called Walking. And um, so I pitched a newspaper story that brought that, you know, that brought those, uh, that brought, that was allowed me to do um, reporting for the book and reading for the book while also feeling like I was accomplishing something for my day job. So I told my boss I was going to walk to work for a week, no car, walk everywhere I needed to go for a week in the middle of summer in Florida. And um, he was, you know, totally down with it. So, uh, so I, I found ways, I guess, to like, you know, 
to kill two birds with one stone. And then it's, I just, you know, I, I, I would just, um, really try to like work my ass off to keep, you know, to keep my, my, my editor happy here at the times and also to try to hit the deadline on, on this book. Um, so it meant a lot of weekends and holidays and, you know, dedicating vacation time to reporting for the book, uh, just any spare moment I could get, um, to do book reporting. I tried to take advantage of it. Yeah, you mentioned the, the story where you walked everywhere for a week. Um, and, and didn't one of, one of those days you walked from Tampa to St. Pete and then back in the same day, right? Yeah, we had a meeting uh, at St. Pete and I wanted to, uh, I can sometimes work in Tampa where my home is. And so that walk was you know, roughly five miles. So I was doing about 10 miles a day to and from work. But we had one morning where uh, we had to, we had to meet in, uh, in we had a, a, like a staff meeting in St. Petersburg and I wanted to show up for that. Um, so yeah, so I walked here and back it's a good walk, maybe 46 miles. Uh, I think it's what we tallied it at just kind of stupid, but it was, it was fun, Uh, hard and fun. Did, did, did doing that give you any insight into Emma? I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I'd never taken a long, a very long walk like that before. I don't think I'd, I'd ever walked more than 20 miles before. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I, uh, yeah, I was trying to get, I was trying to get into her head. I was thinking about her a lot. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a 67 year old woman. So there's limits to how deep inside her psyche I could get. But, but yeah, I mean, I feel like I connected with her on, on that long trip, really that whole week, you know, it's, you spend so much time and thought when you're alone walking, um, that, uh, I feel like it was, a you know, there was discovery about her and about her nature. And then also, the, uh, you know, coming to terms with who you are when tested against the earth. There's, um, there's something about the book. Uh, and and I I don't know if you intended this or not, but, um, as I was reading it, I just, I wanted to start walking everywhere. Um, I don't know. I mean, did you feel that way after writing the book? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I I hope, I hope it, uh, I I feel like I became in in this process, I became like an advocate for walking, um, which had never been a thing before, but, uh, I, I was just, I've been conscious now for a couple of years uh of the benefits of walking and how you know for all intents and purposes we've abandoned unless we unless you live in like a truly walkable city and there are three of them in in the united states um we've abandoned walking no you know you don't walk down to the quarter store anymore you jump in the car to go um and and i think you know there's there's some uh correlation between uh our uh propensity to, to drive everywhere these days and the, the social ills that are, um, you know, the problems in America right now, obesity and, uh, various mental health issues. Um, you know, because he, for years people have extolled smart people, authors, thinkers, uh, have extolled the virtues of walking. And, um, you know, and we, we've, we've gotten away from that. I think now, I felt, uh, I mean, I, I wish it. I wish it had created in me like a, a more intense habit, because um, 
I have uh, gotten away from it more than I thought I would. But uh, I, you know, I to still try to um, check myself uh, often and uh, use the use the car only when completely necessary um, because it, uh, you know, it's, it's life changing. It's a, a life changing experience. Uh, so I'm I'm glad to hear that you 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 read that between the lines. I, I think uh, that's an important you know message from the books. Like get back out there and. There's there's something important about putting your feet uh, on the earth, whether it's in nature or in the city or whatever. I, I think there's, and I've noticed this. Uh, there's you have this feeling of accomplishment when you walk somewhere, you get yourself someplace that you're going without any help other than your own two feet that you don't get when you're oh I just drove two hours that's awesome, you know right. I don't know, I've sent I've, I've I've done that a couple times, like where, you know, maybe my car is getting worked on in town and I don't want to wait for a ride to go pick it up. So, you know, I'll just, I'll just walk five miles in and get it. Um, and then I'm like, well, that's awesome. So I feel good. So hopefully more people will feel that way. Right. Oh, absolutely. There, there's this hilarious, uh, I forget which Bill Bryson book it's in, but, um, I think it can't, he's, he's writing about walking and, uh, and he, uh, this is a hilarious anecdote. He's, he's at the gym and, um, forgive me, I forget the exact situation, but he, he's basically, uh, there's, there's a woman who has, is complaining because she had to drive around and around the gym to find a parking space for like 30 minutes. Uh, and he asks, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm going in, you know, I'm going in to get on the treadmill. And, um, he's like, how far do you live from the gym and she's like you know a mile and a half um so, so <laughs> I, that's, that's what we do though you know i mean you, you drive to the gym so that you can walk in place uh, uh it doesn't make a lot of sense let's talk about the ending of the book um uh, uh maybe maybe three chapters from the end um it's, it's where you you and your wife decide to climb that final summit to kind of retrace uh ms final footsteps can you talk about what you were hoping to get to get out of that scene and maybe that experience and, and did you get it? Yeah. Um, I did. We, we hired a guide to, uh, and I, I gave him, uh, the sections of Emma's diary that dealt with that last little stretch. We wanted to get as close as possible to her, uh, the ascent that she would have taken in 1955. And as I'm sure you know, that the, the AT changes dramatically every year, it's rerouted for erosion, uh, you know, to prevent erosion and other things. So I, w- I wanted to get, I wanted to see what she saw as, as closely as possible. So we decided to do this hike on the exact day that she finished uh, September 25th, 1955 or 26th. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I wanted to, st- I wanted to sort of stalk her, you know, I felt like, uh, the whole book felt like just trying to chase her ghost and to get, to get as firmly inside of her head as possible so that I could write with authority, um, uh, her, you know, what her experience was like. And so, um, so I want, you know, that was an important moment for her, uh, making that final ascent at the end of a long, long trip. She'd gotten this rush of attention. In fact, she left at the bottom of the, you know, Katahdin uh, stream campground at the bottom of the mountain. She left, um, 
uh, an AP reporter and a reporter from Sports Illustrated, Mary Snow, and she wanted to hike this last stretch on her own. And so they stayed at the bottom waiting for her to return. So this is a very solitary trip up Mount Katahdin. And Katahdin is this amazing place. It's, um, you know, it's, it's true wilderness, even with trails. And even if it's a, you know, Baxter State Park, it's like really wilderness. Uh, Thoreau climbed Katahdin and basically went crazy a little bit, uh, you know, calling it uh, this uninhabitable place, this place that man had no purpose being a part of, being on. And, um, and so, and, and so you, you know, you start this climb and obviously hundreds of people do it, maybe thousands of people do it every year now, but still it does have this feeling of desperation and this feeling like I shouldn't be here. The wind doesn't want me here. The rocks don't want me here. And, um, and I, I, you know, I want it was cold and rainy when Emma did it. It wasn't on our hike. It was blue skies. It was very cold though. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, just to get as close to that experience physically as I possibly could. Um, and, uh, did I get there? Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like, again, I felt like some connection to her. Uh, if we, if we walk in the footprints of, of others, even if they did it, you know, 60 years before we did, uh, I think we're still sort of, you know, trying to interpret the same path and, uh, I feel like I achieved that. Did you learn anything about writing or reporting that you didn't know before you started this book project? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, both. I wanted this to, um, what really scared me is I, I have a tendency to check out of, uh, books that, uh, are, are loose that take a while, a long while to, um, explore an idea or to get from point A to point B. Uh, I don't like superfluous books. I like books that are tightly written and, um, that are compact. Um, and so my, I had that in mind for the, you know, for the whole thing. Uh, I, w- I wanted this to be like a solid, uh, brisk, um, magazine story or, or newspaper article even to like almost have the feel of a newspaper article with that kind of speed uh and that kind of respect for the reader's time and so um i kept an eye toward that um but at the same time i, f- I felt like a book gave me uh that length seventy thousand words gives you opportunities that you don't have in smaller um it's you know smaller uh, medium and so, for instance, I, I, in this book, I get to give birth to a hurricane, uh, you know, which is something I never would have contemplated, and because just because of lack of space, you know, in a, in a newspaper story, magazine article, but I had enough room in this book to like create a hurricane, which was a really cool experience for me. I hope it reads cool, but um, then you get uh, the propulsion of the hurricane you know, racing toward the coast at the same time that Emma is walking, you know, along, along, uh, the AT. And so it, it's a tension building device. You have a, a hurricane coming and she's exposed in nature. Um, uh, so yeah. So just sort of the, ex, you know, keeping it, keeping your mind toward writing this thing tightly, but also the idea that you've got room here to play with a lot of stuff 
and um, you know, and and uh, opportunities to create characters where uh, you wouldn't otherwise. And when I say character, I mean, you know, I, I even think of that those hurricanes as characters. Like I tried to create them and, and give them forward motion. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that was. I learned that. I want to talk about some of your other work, um, but first we're going to take a short break. So this is Gangry the Podcast. We'll be right back. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm here with Ben Montgomery, an enterprise reporter at the Tampa Bay Times and the author of Grandma Gatewood's Walk. Uh, ben, one of your stories that's gotten you a significant amount of attention is, is your series For Their Own Good, um, which is a story that looked at the, the history of abuse at Florida's oldest reform school. Can you talk a little bit about that story and how it started and kind of where it's at now? Sure. Um, in October of 2008, these uh, five old men who had found each other online uh, and who all were former wards of the state of Florida at a place called the Florida School for Boys, which later became known as the Dozier School for Boys, uh, they held a small ceremony slash press conference uh, on the campus of um, Florida's oldest reform school and uh, one by one told stories that were incredible. Uh, they detailed their abuse. They talked about uh, beatings they took in a, a small, dank cinder block building they referred to as the White House. The beatings were administered by a one-armed man uh, named Troy Tidwell. And um, fortunately, the uh, a reporter for the Tallahassee uh, Bureau of the Associated Press was at that uh, little event and wrote uh, an AP story that ran in the Metro se- section of the Tampa Bay Times. And that's that's my first <clears throat> brushing up against that story. When I read it, I walked immediately over to the desk of my editor at the time, Kelly Benham. And uh, the way she tells it, my eyes were wide. And I was basically like, this is crazy, if true. And, um, and so we set off uh, very, very shortly after that. Uh, in pursuit of that question, is this true, what these men are saying? Um, so as, as my reporting started, that Associated Press story had, had gotten enough play in enough different places that men who were mistreated at that school started coming out of the woodwork. And um, I told one of, the, one of the five original guys who had started a website, I said, anybody who contacts you, 
please just share my number or give me their number, put me in touch with them. And um, so we started uh, reporting a story about, it, you know, is one, is this true? And two, uh, if it is true, who's uh, responsible, who can be brought to account for the things these men um, are saying they, they experienced. And uh, so that first story ran in April of 2009 and since then has, I mean, I've been writing about it since then. So everything after that has been some sort of spinoff of um, that original story, including uh, one that, um, uh, you know, we feel got the place shut down finally after 111 years of operation. Um, we, you know, found that abuse continued even, you know, even uh, as late as 2010, 2011. Um so uh, it's it's ongoing. The, the uh, you know the the number of men who share a similar experience has grown to five hundred now, and um, and they've got they feel like they're owed something from the state. Uh, first of all, an apology, and then beyond that, um, they uh, they they want some sort of. Uh, some sort of uh, settlement that makes them feel better about lives lived in deep despair with fear and anxiety and, you know, uh, emotional fallout similar to post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, and then even beyond that, there's a, there's a small cemetery on the campus that, that, that we had lots of questions about who was buried there, how were they killed. Um, the state did an investigation in 2009 and determined that 31 boys were buried there, but um, a group of forensic anthropologists from the University of South Florida have since uh, started unearthing remains of boys there with the hopes of identifying them, and they have found a total of 55 uh, sets of remains. Uh, and they still believe there's another cemetery uh, hidden on the property. So um, the reporting continues. Yeah, a lot of your stories, um, at least the ones we've talked about today, um, with spectacle and, and for their own good, and even in Grandma Gatewood's walk. Um, are historically historically based. Um, uh, what what draw what has drawn you to that type of reporting? Uh, good question. I, I don't. Uh, I get. Oh, so, uh, maybe it started with for their own good because you know we really had to like. I had to learn my way through historical documents. Uh, how do you find newspaper clippings? Uh, how do you find, um, you know, uh, state records that, you know, from 1959 or whatever. And so, uh, it was like a crash course in, in accessing, finding and accessing that stuff. Um, and so it may, it makes each subsequent project kind of a look back at whatever, a little bit easier because now I know where to go for all this stuff. Um, so that, I don't know if I'm necessarily drawn to those stories. I just, I know how to do them now. And so, um, it's far more, uh, you know, it's, it's just far easier. And, um, so maybe I am more attracted to that. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm about to pitch a second book and it, it also is, uh, an historical account of, uh, a cool thing that happened, but, um, yeah, I guess uh, that education and that the, the ability to like quickly get historical stuff, um, you know, opens up the possibility of like 
always looking back at. I mean, there's so many things that you know show up in a newspaper today that you think, oh wow, this would be awesome to come back at this in ten years or five years or whatever. I think that all the time, once the dust has settled, once there's a chance to tell the full story. Uh, so, you know, those things also existed five and ten years ago, and fifty and a hundred years ago. And it's just a matter of like um, recognizing them and then and then doing the work to uh, tell the story. When did you know you wanted to be a newspaper reporter? I was going to be a farmer. Um, my, my grandpa uh, has a cattle farm in Slick, Oklahoma, and I, I had every intention of going back and helping him run that farm at least. Uh, and then my, I got married to my high school sweetheart uh, my freshman year in college, and she was basically like, no, I want to go to New York. And so, and so this opened, uh, forced the door open to other possibilities. I took a journalism class uh, as an extra credit. Uh, so it was like, you know, English, junior level English or feature writing. And the feature writing class sounded cool. I'd never really been a big newspaper reader before that. I'd never really written anything that I was proud of. And, um, the first assignment was, I would say like 2000 words on a subject of your choice. And so I, uh, wrote about pot on the campus of Arkansas tech university. And I turned the story in and, uh, and the, uh, couple of classes later or whatever, the, the professor read that in front of the class, he read the, you know, the lead on the story and he was, his name was Tommy Mubbard. He was basically like, this is how we should be doing it. And uh, it was such an uplifting moment and such this, you know, I played sports all my, all my life, but this was way more personal uh, to have someone compliment um, something that you really worked hard on and to know that it worked out, that it, you know, had an impact or whatever. So I think that sealed the deal, deal you know, I'm, I'm still in some respects like chasing that feeling. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's how I got into it. Do you still want a farm? Oh yeah. I, uh, I've been talking about that for <laughs> a couple of years now, but she still doesn't want to move to slick. <laughs> um, is there anyone who stands out in your mind as having had a big impact kind of on your career as a reporter? Oh, there are tons of, tons of people. Um, I, uh, writing wise, I mean, I, you know, uh, uh, Rick Bragg is, uh, you know, a lot of people would roll their eyes at that, I think, but, uh, he, his work has been most influential to me just because it has, it's what I'm trying to achieve in, just in terms of the writing. Um, it has this kind of, uh, you know, this like Southern goth feel to it. Um, his word choice and sentence structure is often poetic. And, um, I aspire to, uh, make people feel with words what he made me feel with words. Uh, outside of that, I learn every day. You know, I sit beside uh, Michael Cruz uh, across a cubby wall from uh, Lane DeGregory and Caddy Corner from Leonora LaPeter. And I, uh, behind me is Susan Taylor Martin and Connie, uh, uh, Chris Hudley. And um, just surrounded by like really good journalists. And so I learned every day, just listening to telephone calls or listening to the pitches they give in meetings, seeing how they 
select stories. Um, you know, Kelly Benham was incredibly influential. She's been my, she uh, is now teaching at the University of uh, at Indiana. And, uh, but, but she was my editor for, gosh, five years. Uh, and she was, you know, she was incredibly helpful. She has this knack for diagnosing the problem in stories that um, has rubbed off a little bit on me. And uh, that's very useful. My editor now, uh, Bill Durier, is, you know, fantastic as well. Um, Mike Wilson, who's at uh, Nate Silver's 538 now, he's uh, one of the sharpest story doctors I've ever worked with. And just a single editing session with him you walk away with tons of lessons and a better understanding of what you've done right, what you've done wrong. Um, and then, you know, backing up even, even further, uh, Mike Levine, who's, um, unfortunately he's, uh, he's been dead about, uh, gosh, eight years now. Um, but he was my boss at the times Herald record and he, uh, just had a heart of gold and he, um, who's incredibly influential uh, for not only me, but a bunch of young writers who've gone on to bigger and better things. Um, just his idea, his idea about journalism, that it's our job, that the world is broken and it's our job to try everything we can to fix it. Um, I still, you know, I still like that. And think, think anything anybody's ever told me, that's probably been the most impactful in terms of what we do. Um, let's, let's talk about gangry.com, uh, yeah. which is obviously the namesake, uh, for this podcast and, uh, kind of actually the, the place where I actually got turned on to this idea of narrative journalism, even after going through, through grad school. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about it and how it came about and, and kind of what the idea behind it was and, and that, th that type of thing? Yeah. Uh, to, it was like 2005. I was um, uh, uh, working at the Tampa Tribune, um, and I had been for a long while. I've been just like many reporters, uh, collecting um, stories that I saw that were good, and uh, sometimes I would paste them into this little notebook I used to carry. Other times I'd put them in a file or something, and I, I. Um, and I thought, you know, blogs were sort of taking off in 2005. Maybe they'd already taken off a little bit. But I thought there's a – if I'm looking for this stuff, seeking this stuff out and trying to pick it apart and figure out why it works, why it didn't work, uh, there are other people out there doing the same thing. Maybe we could, um, you know, over time sort of form some kind of community to make each other better and to learn and all of that good stuff. And so, uh, and so I started a blog. I got a guy I knew from college to like set it all, all up for me and uh, make it really easy. And I just started posting stories basically. Um, and pretty soon it, it became not only a, a way to learn from people, but also like a way to connect with other writers uh, at, at its best. It was like, you know, a, a virtual uh, bar room where you could, um, you know, you could trash talk or you could, uh, uh, Tell somebody you loved them or, you know, have a heartfelt conversation about a story or offer your own work up for criticism. And the crowd kind of got bigger and bigger. And, um, it, you know, some great journalists started showing up 
to show the rest of us how to do it. And that's always blown me away, you know, but, um, but that's kind of how it got going. It's been dangling. It feels like for, you know, a year or so, uh, mainly because of this book work, I, I wish I had more time to nurture it. Like I used to, um, you know, it was not rare five years ago for me to post three or four stories a day. And now it's, you know, it's, I've fallen off uh, a little bit and uh, the discussions have died down. Also, I think that partly has to do with other mediums that are sort of easier to like talk and, and share ideas like Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. Um, so I'm not sure. I'd love, actually love suggestions uh, from people about the future of gangray is there still a need for it do people still care about it is still a good way to share stories uh or is there something we should be doing better or should we just put it out of its misery i don't really know you know i i don't i i it's it's, what do you think i you know it's still a place where i go to find stories um yeah you know you're right the the discussion has died down a bit you Um, think that's because of twitter i think it is yeah it's so easy to share your your well i don't know there are still some topics that will get something going. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, but, you know, Facebook has come along since since you launched the website, too. And that's, you know, you can get con- you can get discussions going on Facebook about stories, too, if you have the right group of people. Um, right. So, I don't know. Maybe it's more competition. Um, but I, I tell you what, it's still the place where I go to look for stories that I know are going to be what I like to read, which is good. Yeah. So, yeah, the traffic is about, I mean, the traffic is, you know, about the same as it was three or four years ago. Uh, it's just not, I don't think it's the, I don't think anymore it's the first, uh, outlet that people go to, to talk story. I think now that outlet is more immediate on Mm -hmm. Twitter and other places. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I all I know is that I got my first ever freelance magazine assignment from gangry.com based on oh, a comment nice. um, on a story. I commented on a post um, about unicorns or something. Yeah. And then literally my phone rang the next day from an editor at Cleveland Magazine who always went to the site uh, and asked me to turn that comment into a magazine piece. So I will always hold it near and dear. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> because it launched my vastly mediocre magazine freelance writing career so um, that's fantastic i had no idea Matt. yeah so um so yeah so uh, is there is there anything else you're working on that you can that you can talk about uh yeah one more note about uh, gangray like i yeah i was always blown away by who read it uh that i didn't know was reading it so i get you know i get notes occasionally from um people that I know and idolize in the field of journalism and, uh, you know, saying, Hey, really like the blog. I read it all the time. And that's, that's what's kept me going for a long, you know, sort of labor of love. I actually pay for it. Uh, uh, but, um, yeah, anyways, it's good to hear that, you know, you bring up a good point. I mean, it did create a community, right? Um, a community. It, it created this community of people who um, enjoyed that type of writing and that type of reporting. Uh, uh, and it was it, and it wasn't. It still is cool to log to go to the site and see Chris Jones commenting on something, or Hank Stuver, or you know, 
um, any of those guys commenting on stuff. Uh, right. So yeah, that that's that's always been, um, you know, it started that community I think, and then it was easy for us to all hook up on Twitter and and kind of expand that. So yeah, yeah, I think uh, you're right. I, I'm I'll keep it running as long as I possibly can. I guess <laughs> there's got to be something better. You know what I mean? That's that's what I've, I felt for like a year or two. Like what you know. Ha- still totally willing to like serve as a story promoter. And, and I, I just wanted to be more like the conversation to be as vigorous as it was a year or two ago. Right. Right. And so I, I guess that's probably about, you know, commitment, like keeping people engaged. I don't yeah. know. Uh, so you asked about stuff I'm working on. Yeah. I'm what are you not, working on now? Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I really love to pitch another book and I'm getting closer to that. I'm super excited because this was a fun, it was a hard but fun process, um, and uh, yeah, I'm working on uh, you know I'm working on stories for the times that that I really like that have some potential, including this really interesting one that's going to drop here in a week or two about this uh, division in the uh, clown community, uh, the balloon and clown community that's um, heretofore gone unreported on. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that, and then the, the Dozier coverage, you know, is ongoing. So mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a lot more to be written about that place. Well, sounds good, Ben. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for having me. I think it it really adds a lot to uh, helping people get better. We've been talking with Ben Montgomery. Montgomery is an enterprise reporter at the Tampa Bay Times and the author of Grandma Gatewood's Walk, the inspiring story of the woman who saved the Appalachian Trail. As usual, we've linked to several of Montgomery's stories on our website. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. Join us next time when we talk with Eva Holland, a freelance writer from the Pacific Northwest who is also an associate editor of Up Here and Up Here Business magazines. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. 